Artcast, your weekly podcast for insight into the articles to read, decks to play at FNM, cards to buy and sell, and insight from Robert Martin and Channel Fireball's own Tristan Sean Bergson. It's time for Hardcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Hardcast. I'm Tristan Sean Gregson here with my co-host out there. Give us a shout out. Hello again, everybody. Robert Martin here. It's uh, been a while for all you seemingly loyal listeners. A uh, combination of playoff hockey season and uh, being on location at many a PTQ release, pre-release, and Grand Prix weekend has kept me away from the microphone. Uh, meanwhile, Robert's been d- doing the best he can to hold up the audio portion of the Internet when it comes to magic with all the various places you can find him. But we are reunited today, this evening, after everyone knows everything there is to know about new Phyrexia, I'm sure they think. We've got this week's content from ChannelFireball.com. So what do you got for us, Robert? Uh, we're going to have a review for Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, talk a little bit about what the experiences that you had from there. And then we have our articles. We have a F&M deck to talk about. And we have our 5 up, 5 down, which will be very interesting. And our coupon code is very timely. It's coming at the end. It's coming at the end. It's not now. It's for later. Nope, and I apologize. You know, last time we even did one of these, we we, uh, we failed to even add a coupon, which many listeners pointed out to me. And I apologize for that. Your deals are on the way. And it's very timely. Let's hope so. So why don't we talk a little bit about what happened at... Grand Prix Dallas Fort Worth. Oh, it's it's a it's it's an eternity away for me, and it, it's funny. I, you know, most people wouldn't realize that, despite the fact that I'm in the room in the building, I know absolutely nothing about what's going on during the course of the weekend. If anything, the only only way I really know how to follow what I got our guys are doing is when people come to me on day two and ask for sleeves for their deck. You know, it's like Owen Owen shows up after 14 rounds, like, hey, I need new sleeves. Can I just grab new sleeves? I was like, of course you can grab new sleeves, Owen. Obviously, you're still in tournament. And if I wasn't following them there, it was actually from Robert's excellent Twitter feed, letting us know exactly what Team Fireball was doing. But other than that, I, I bought a lot of cards. That's what I did. I know I know that um, Candelabras were selling. People were desperately looking for foreign black border duels. Those things are going through the roof right now. But, again, that's we're not that part of the show. Uh, you, you were the guy in the pits, Robert. How, how was the experience for you? It was very interesting to experience a lot of what happens from – what the pros do, how Team Fireball put their decks together to the fact that they need Inferno Titans and the costs and the other cards they needed to fill out their decks. That all came together. And then as the t- tournament went along, I did some shadowing of people and started watching how they played. Between rounds, how it doesn't really matter what shirt you wear on the front. They all come talk to each other and find out how they're doing. And they all watch each other, which is really neat to show that kind of camaraderie between Magic players. It's a lot of fun. And there's a lot of stories that my recorder should have been on for, but I couldn't just because some of those conversations were never meant to come out outside of the conversation of the people they were with. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Um, Right around, actually right before Worlds, uh, when Brad was working with us, he talked a lot about how great it would be to have just... um, like a documentary style following kind of the, the team and, the, and it, the surrounding events during the course of the weekend. And I, I remember him being very enthusiastic. Yeah, people want to see this stuff. You should narrate it. You should follow these guys around. There's great stories, great stuff. And I was like, uh, I stopped him and I was like, you're probably right, Brad, but how much of it could we really air? I, I don't, I mean, outside of the deck building and maybe the drafting and 
one-third of what the guys say. I don't know if you could post a lot of it up there. So, Especially uh, Sunday got, nights after the yeah, thing's you gotta, done. you got you to be there for the experiences is, is pretty much the best way to put it. I mean, you can try to encapsulate it in words and pictures and videos, but uh, you got to be there. As Channel Fireball expands their coverage of events, you will be seeing more stuff from there as far as audio, video, etc., that we can right. only hope. Fingers crossed. Yes. Now we've got our, our, our dedicated sideline reporter, not quite the beautiful Aaron Andrews, but the second best thing we can get, and that being uh, Robert Barton. Aaron Andrews right now wouldn't be a bad choice. But anyways, we actually do have magic articles to talk about this week. And, and anytime you're ready. I, I mean, yes. you, you never know. Maybe maybe people want us to, you know, they, they've missed our voices. Now having been on the internets for a good two weeks in this in this particular arena, who knows? Maybe there's people out there just sitting at home, taking a Taking a hard cast break. There you go. 30 minutes. Listen to the static. But that's not me. Let's let's move on. What is uh, what is Michael Hedrick writing about this week? Writing about how to improve Copley decks with Frexian Crusader, Hero Bladehold, Into the Royal. The card I thought was really interesting was Thada Adele, Ink Moth Nexus, and Oust. The Thada Adele because everybody's playing blue, and that card becomes an unstoppable juggernaut. I, I was definitely a proponent of that card early in the what do we do about the Cobblade circumstance. Um, you know, a lot of people I knew weren't too excited about it because it's like, well, you still have to pay for the artifact you exile. It's not super fast, so there's going to be a lot of times when your opponent already gets the sword out of their deck and uh, your Thadadel isn't necessarily doing what it should be doing. Um, I, I still think it, it has reach. I mean, definitely post-board, if your opponents are thinking that you're bringing in sword removal, they'll usually board in a second sword. Um, you can still get, you know, like, you still have another shot or a pod, which seems pretty key still in that mirror match. It's not like a, a one-shot kind of deal like a lot of people thought I, or I knew thought it was going to be when the card was first talked about in decks. And on top of that, the most key thing is that it's unblockable. So you're mm-hmm. talking about all the circumstances where you're trying to punch a guy through with sword in the mirror match. Here's one that's going to be doing it quite a bit. Khalif talks about multiple decks across multiple formats with a lot of talk about a card that I find interesting, and he says it could be format-changing in both Legacy and Standard, and that's Lead the Stampede. Lead the Stampede, or as I like to call it, all of my friends who are obsessed with statistics, one of their favorite cards, but not their favorite card, because they would rank it somewhere, and it would be a stat. Um, yes, obviously the potential draw zero, draw five, draw somewhere in between, and the versatility uh, of everything in between is what is the allure of this card. And in the legacy format, you're going to have the most creatures that act as spells. So maybe it, maybe it's going to reach all the way back there. I don't know. This uh, it sounds like something. If you're a Lead the Stampede fan, aka a, a statistics student, uh, you should definitely check out this article. Yeah, and it explains clearly in breakdown how being a slow player is an issue in standard. And this week, Josh gives you techniques on how to improve on that. He also refers to judges' conversations that he's had, along with common sense ways to avoid the draw bracket. Because when you play Cobblade, you're going to end up most times in the draw bracket. And as it becomes more and more the number one deck in, in, the, uh, in the environment, the standard environment right now, that is uh, an actual concern. And there's always kind of a long-standing joke between tournament Magic players where um, if you play a slow-grinding control deck, uh, if you play kind of a, like, uh, I say it's like, so, I mean, like, anything other than aggro, really, like, you don't fear the draw bracket, and some decks really want to be in the draw bracket, because the decks that are there 
are the slower decks. And Cobblade isn't always the fastest deck, especially when you get to mirror matches. Now, this season is a little bit different since so many people are playing the same deck, so I, I think the article could be split into two parts. A, how to play faster and make your decisions, and B, how to play against the mirror, because if you're going to draw, then uh, that's what's going to happen all day long. Absolutely. Webb, this week's draft was rough. He had two different types of shells he could have played. It was either a green-white or a green-blue. He was not happy with his decision on there for how he what he played because he didn't like how slow it was. It's a case of when that pack one pick one comes up and it's nothing, nothing good, it could just affect how the whole draft goes. I completely agree. Uh, Besieged is not a set that's immune to kind of the blank pack. I think uh, Rise of Eldrazi in recent past is a great example of a set where, I mean, distribution aside, like you could just open 15 cards and it's like, wow, that's... There's a lot of nice fourth and fifth picks in my pack, but how, how could I miss so bad? And Besiege, it hurts even more because so many of the rares are so good. Paolo discusses spoilers. His likes and dislikes, including a card that could be in his bottom five of all time, which was when I posted this up on Channel Fireball, uh, Chapin said, it can't possibly be one of the five worst of all time. It acts like a giant wall. <laughs> that card would be Defensive Stance. And then his pick for his favorite card that he saw so far was Batter Skull. I, I agree on both counts. Um, you know, I'm going to agree with Paulo real fast on defensive posture. Or what was it called? Defensive stand? Defensive stance. Defensive stance. I, I read it probably like three or four times because I was expecting it to say something else. I wasn't even really sure what. I, I, I kept thinking, like, creature gains infects or... Draw a card or shroud <laughs> or like look at target player's hand. Like there, I kept saying, I kept thinking there's got to be something on there, but at, no, no. After after a long, long look, I was like, wow, this this makes holy armor look amazing. And holy armor back in its day was actually not that horrible, just somewhat horrible. It is a fine card. Yeah. <laughs> you want to play Cobray? Correctly, Matt Nass's articles for you to see how Matt's relationship with Raptor is and how much he trusts him on how his build of his decks go and a lot of stuff. It's almost that mentor relationship, but considering how well he's played lately, it's kind of like this mentoring relationship's obviously working out well for Matt. Those guys, they come into the store and uh, they test together a lot. I know they spend a lot of time bouncing ideas off each other. Um, again, it's an, it's an interesting mesh. I think that um, like I'm not I'm not as familiar with Josh the deck builder. He, uh, which seems like an interesting compliment to Matt Nass because Matt Nass is usually a, a design person. Maybe that's what makes the team so great. Matt's the uh, the idea person, and then and then uh, Josh is the tweaker. And I, I say that more figuratively than literally. I, I definitely think that Josh can take a deck and uh, make it work. I mean, his Nationals deck from last year is a great example where. He played to explore in it, and you know, upon asking him, like, why did you play to explore in your uh, Eldrazi Conscription deck, he was just like, well, you know, I, there isn't really a better card. There's a slim chance this is going to give me the accelerant to be able to, to make my deck go off on the, on the third turn again. And it was the card I decided to play because there was nothing better, and it's not like, you know, I didn't want a spot removal or that kind of thing. So I definitely think he uh, is an adjuster, and Matt is a designer, and that probably works out really well for them. Adam writes his article this week on something he did not want to write about, and that's the history of Legacy. They pseudo-call him the Legacy Historian, and it's a part one of his series. <laughs> is it a future novel on 
on a legacy? It sure could be with the way it was pounded out. I'm like, if this is only part one, dread to ask how many parts this might be. If you are a legacy fan, to go through the history and stuff of this is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's um, legacy is in many ways a history of magic. I mean, it's, it's kind of the most open format for magic. Uh, obviously, you know, people immediately argue, well, vintage, that's where you get to play all the cards. But uh, we, we, we all, we all uh, admit that it isn't fair and it was never fair and that's, you know, not what magic should be about. And Legacy is the closest thing to being able to play with every single magic card and have it feel like it's fair. Instead of, you know, turn one, time walk, turn two, turn a sphere, dark seal, colossus, which I have definitely done in vintage before and was not a fair game. So... It's uh, it's something to think about. I, I mean, uh, yes, I'm a magic historian, so that kind of thing interests me. And there's nothing more satisfying than going to a tournament and and playing, being able to play against anything, and, and knowing that your opponent can have any cards in his deck. And it's like it feels like old schoolyard magic, where you just play against whatever someone's collection was. And I, I think that's uh, it's important for the game. Brian this week writes about sometimes you need to look beyond the appearance of the person to make the right trades. Every person, regardless of age or appearance, can be an opportunity to make a successful trade. He talks about a situation where he dealt with a younger, his friend dealt with a younger kid who had, it was a very valuable card. All his friend had in his trade binder was a bunch of junk rares. And the kid's like, I just need a collection. So he gave up the card that was worth at least twice as much as the set because he wanted all the cards. So sometimes you have to look beyond what the person's age is and how the person looks like to make good trades and be successful <laughs> and be good at it. No, I, I, um, I, I definitely have a couple of tales in a similar vein. I mean, I remember uh, being in a draft once, 7th seventh, seventh edition draft, the kid opened a foil Wrath of God, and I later was able to acquire it from him in a trade because he needed a considerable number of 50-cent dollar rares to fill out a whole bunch of decks he needed, and, you know, Thank goodness I had the, kind of the excess binder with me that day because to me it was kind of a, like a free a free roll. It was taking a bunch of stuff that wasn't going to do anything for me. I couldn't unload it in any other place, and we both ended up very happy with the transaction. And alternatively, uh, back when I used to be a much heavier trader, I would employ um, employ is a strong word. I don't think I actually paid these kids. I might have fed them because they were in the same car as me to events. But um, I definitely had some some younger guys I knew that knew how to trade well, so I would send them out there with my stuff. And it would be deceptive, the younger, you know, the, the 15, 14, 13 crowd of Magic players. You don't you don't think they're going to be the kind of the grifters of the event, but they were uh, they were very good at what they did, and we all we all had a we all had success back in the day. So you put the little sharks out in the field, huh? Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. <laughs> well, speaking of X Owen. A shock that is. Another XON article this week in how he made Rug a winning choice at Grand Prix Dallas Fort Worth. The only problem he had was last minute difficulties, decisions to make with the sideboard. That's the the thing that I pulled out of the article more than anything else. Is that even when you're dealing with cards seventy, seventy one, so on and so forth, that there are some tough decisions based on what you want to play against and what you expect to play against. And he even admits that in the top four that he made a mistake and should have won his match. Can you tell me anyone who's having a better start this year on the Pro Tour than him? Uh, you know, at this point it seems redundant. It seems excessive. Uh, so far it's the year of the Owen. 
and uh, not much to say beyond that. I think the the good things to point out from this article is that if you're not going to play Cobblade right now, Rug is the deck to play. Um, you've seen you know, Dallas is the perfect example of a, of a top eight where you only saw two different types of decks. And sure, there's plenty of room for cards within those decks. And I think that Rug actually has a lot more options of, of uh, things to play in it outside of the Cobblade deck. And um, Owen bemoaning, you know, what 71 through 75 is in his uh, list, it makes sense. It's a big deal. And you're going to have, I, I feel like you're going to have a lot more room to have that kind of surprise factor um, against opponents with the rug deck than you are, no matter how much you tweak your Cobblade deck right now, Feta, Adele, or not. So, um, again, you know, you're, you're, with Owen's articles, you're getting the guy whose ear is, is right to the grindstone right now. So, conversation. You had with the fellow show person is starting to come true more by more by the minute. The conversation Luis oh, had with yes, you. Yes, 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 that is very true. Sorry, the sharks just went on a five-on-three power play for a minute and twenty-three seconds, so I'm mildly distracted at the moment. But uh, I will I will refocus to yes. Owen is having a great year. I won't. I'm not going to jinx anything at this point. I'm not going to interject other people's comments. But uh, yes. a player to look out for. A player whose year it is right now. And remarkably, considering when he was talking to his friends, I'll bring that up as far as the experience, all along, regardless of you know how well he was doing, he was just, how is everybody else doing? You know, he's checking in on everybody to see how they're doing. He's, you know, he's sitting XO, but he's still worried about how everybody else is doing. And that just shows how much his passion for the game is that he it's, cares about what else is going on. It's still kind of a team sport to these guys. I mean, sure, you're, you have to focus on your own individual matches when you go into the ring, but you always want to make sure that uh, there are guys still in the tournament, and especially people that you worked with, you know, make sure they're, uh, they're, they're doing well. Alexander this week explains why surgical extraction can ruin your opponent's deck of threat. And numbers don't lie on how powerful a card that this can be. He statistically shows throughout this whole explanation of how powerful surgical extraction is percentage-wise by pulling it out how much of a threat a top deck draw threat you're losing by every time he does that now uh, at the end of the day fan or not a fan of this card is, is what I've got to know though me no no Alexander Shear oh he's a fan of it because of statistics it helps the advantage it gives the advantage to the good player that can pull out the right card Okay. Okay. In, interested. Uh, interested. I am definitely. That's. Kind of, I think right now that's my pick of the week of the one I've got to go back and look at because uh, Luis is not hot on this card. Um, kind of like memberside variants right now. They kind of have you. It feels like you're playing scared. Like you're. You're not dealing with something on the table. You're not dealing with a real problem. You're kind of trying to make a preemptive strike for something that may or may not actually affect the game. So. Fitting your opponent's deck out of threats could be a big deal. I mean, obviously this card ruins Vengevine, we all know that, but what it does beyond that, I'm not sure. So I'm I'm interested to read on. Matt Nass, his second article, because he wrote one earlier in the week, uh, running the Legacy Gauntlet, twist of play off of LSV's thing about Ad Nauseam versus High Tide. And my whole thought is, is that obviously the guys have quickly turned their focus from standard now to preparation for Grand Prix Providence? Uh, definitely the pros are moving towards Legacy. I think it's also just kind of a, a good timing, a great change of pace for the website where we brought you so much uh, standard content, so it's, it's really great to bring uh, something else as far as Legacy. And again, now that Urza's Destiny is out online, we're 
a little closer to online legacy matching up with real life legacy. So hopefully we can get more of those uh, those matchups. Hopefully uh, some video content from that as well. LSV running the gauntlet with Valakut goes back again against the blue white menace. It looks like that just from watching him do these series, I'm wondering had his choice might not have been Boros had he gone either Valakut or Rug. I would imagine Rug uh, would have been a second or third choice for Luis had he not played Boros. Um, I'm pretty confident in saying that the reason he chose to play Boros in Texas was because of the results he was getting from the matchup series. I mean, he was playing against competent people. He was playing uh, the matchups, and it looked favorable. I mean, in retrospect, he kind of kicks himself for not playing a deck with Jason. And so um, Rug and Blue, you know, Rug and some variety of, of birds would have been the way to do it. And uh, with, uh, again, Owen sporting the rug deck, I think that the team probably would have gone that direction. Now, Conley's deck, which is coming up either today or, or tomorrow or the next day, explains why innovation is critical to magic, and not necessarily being the best technical player with the best deck doesn't make you unable to win. He goes head-to-head with uh, AJ's article this week explaining why he and people like him make innovation work in magic. One of the things I got from that article, which is really neat, is Conley says, I am not the technical player that Paolo is. If Paolo is considered a 10 in technical playing, I am considered a 7 or an 8. But my deck can give me a plus 2 or 3 advantage. Technically, I feel I'm at the advantage going into the tournament over the player who's playing the best deck and is the best skilled at it. That goes a long way with the uh, the rogue lifestyle. Um, obviously, you know something that I've always believed in, and when people ask me, you know, how do I get better at magic, how do I play more competitive events at a higher level, uh, knowing your deck goes a very long way. I mean, sure, these guys at the very, very top, the 0.1% of the players can pick up something the night before, be handed a deck, and 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 seemingly master it. But for the, the F&M grinders, for the, for the PTQ hopefuls, in a lot of ways, if you're going to have an opportunity to play a season, you're going to want to get to know your deck inside and out. And being Conley Woods, being the guy that's creating all this stuff, making his own lists every, you know, 71 through 75, all the way up there, you have a much better opportunity to know your deck inside and out. And that's something that, you know, rogue deck builders, rogue deck players almost always have an advantage over the guys that maybe net deck a list or take the most recent article from Luis and, and sleeve it up. It's kind of like, you know, well, well, why are there two of these cards in the main deck? Why is there one of this card in the main deck? Why are there two in the sideboard? That kind of thing. Um, you know the insides and the outs. And it goes a very long way. And, and in many respects, I agree with what Conley has to say. It's like, you know, there's your advantage. Like, you're going to know your list inside and out. And I think he stresses that a lot in there, too. Um, Chaz this week shows you how to sell cards and make money while being your own eBay store. If you want to sell your cards and go through the process of doing it yourself, he explains quickly how how to do that and how to make it reasonable. Now, of course, you're taking tons of chances by doing it on eBay because you never really know who you're dealing with. He gives it at a weight that it's reasonable to do if you have no, the time I, and patience. I, I, I um, am very familiar with the eBay sales lifestyle, um, and there are there are pitfalls. There are, you know, kind of safety nets. There, there are a lot of pros and cons, um, you know, and... Uh, you can definitely make money on it. There's definitely opportunities to do it. You know, I don't want to sound like an advertisement for the site that we happen to be hosted on, but 
more often than not, especially right now, uh, Channel Fireball has more of a demand than a supply problem. So for a lot of stuff, we are offering pretty much the same price you're going to make trying to sell cards in the open market to players. Um, if you consider fees, if you consider postage and all those kind of things, selling the Channel Fireball. And, you know, I, I'm sure I could do a comparison article. I could do some breakdown and the math thing, which isn't my favorite. But, uh, you know, that's another option to think. But if, if you... If you are someone that, that sells on eBay right now, you should look at look at your margins, look at what you're selling stuff for, and see what you can get from ChannelFireball.com. And I wouldn't be surprised if they are very close, or if not better, on our own website right now. Let's talk about the FNM Deck of the Week. This was applied to by fellow podcaster, rogue deck design builder himself, Smitty. And he equates and calls it Agrocoot. Agrocoot or... Vagroco, I kind of like that one. Yeah, Vagroco. I think you can buy that, can't you, somewhere? Yeah, it's oh, a male enhancement. It's a yes. Jack Enhancement product, I'm Jack sure. Enhancement product, yes. But it's, 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 in a, it's a, I think, a Valakut shell yes. with aggressive threats in it. Uh, and this appears to be an extended deck list. Yeah, just throwing that out there, which is weird because it has one Elvish Visionary in it. And I can't, I'm trying to find the other cards that are in extended only. I don't think there are any. All right. Well, if you cut that Elvish Visionary and put it in a card deck, you have a standard legal deck while you're, uh, as well. So yes, it, things to consider. But your deck is full of threats while at the same time kind of having the, the reach of a Valakut deck. I'm sure you're running Colony Heart Expedition, uh, but you're also running Free Emissary, Birds of Paradise, Goblin Guides, uh, and Heroes of Oxford Ridge along with your Primeval Titans. Uh, so you, you're, your opponent has to kind of have diversity in their answers, which is... Um, you know, another way that a Valakut list can attack its opponents. If you go to FNMs and your opponents have a bunch of flash freezes, spell pierces, uh, you know, maybe some tectonic edges and spreading seas against your Valakut deck, now you have, you know, kind of a way to mix it up and catch them off guard with all the threats in your deck. Five up, five down. Let's start with the upside this week. Um, starting with a couple of cards that are hot because of the upcoming block season. And I'm not sure how many amateur tournaments you're going to see surrounding block. I think there will be a greater number than zero, so it's going to affect the price of things. But we're looking at, um, number one is Consecrated Sphinx. Again, you're looking for kind of a, a big flyer guy that also gives you card advantage. Card advantage being harder to come by, usually in block formats when it's not very obvious. Although this guy seems pretty obvious. Um, and he's Mythic Rare, so he's got a lot more room to grow on his value. He's gone up a little bit. Since the time that I've said this, uh, I think last time I checked in on him, he was about $3. He's up around the 5 550 range right now. And, again, Mythic Rares have a lot more room to grow. And uh, watch for block season to unfold. Get this guy on the cheap and uh, maybe trade him away at a profit. Maybe play him in a deck. Either way, he's got nowhere to go but up. He's not going to go down, I guarantee it. Next on my list, we've got Grand Architect. Uh even better than Consecrated Sphinx, seemingly even more obvious for uh, the upcoming block format. You've got a mana creature crusade effect guy that also has some uh, some colored artifact friends and spells coming out of the new set. So it's going to be pretty exciting to watch Grand Architect um, kind of shape up in the block season. What about Infernal Titan? Infernal Titan is kind of the... Uh, the becoming a four of in the rug lists and the Valakut lists to kind of deal with all those little pesky birds and such that are out there. Uh, that being the case, you, you could point at a few cards going up in the post-Nationals qualifier metagames. Um, 
you know, Gideon Jura actually hasn't made as much of a move as I thought he was going to make. But this card has, has definitely gone up. He's a solid $15 right now. He's more of an immediate mover. I mean, like I talk about like Consecrated Sphinx and Grand Architect. I think those have a longer-term up value. Inferno Titan is hot, hot, hot right now, pun intended. So uh, cash in on them, in, in my opinion, for the fact that their value is still got room to increase with National Qualifier for the next two weekends and a PTQ season for Nationals uh, right now. Or, sorry, for Standard right now. Gaius Cradle. Legacy is a lot about speculation. Uh, Matt Nass gave you a mono-green elves list, or it's like almost mono-green with a little touch of blue, and other people have been talking about Legacy elves. Gaius Cradle, much like its sisters, cousins, Flaring Academy, Sarah Sanctum, um, have the ability to just create an absurd amount of mana. And... While this hasn't had a you know spectacular tournament showing that a lot you know the masses have seen, the card has already gone through the roof in value as part of speculation, and could be the next wasteland. It could be the next. I mean, not Candelabra, but it could be the next one of those cards to make a huge jump. I mean, right now I think Channel Fireball is selling it for seventy dollars, which like kind of blows my mind. I remember when for the longest time Cradle was a twenty thirty dollar card tops. You could still get them at that price, and now uh, you know we'll gladly buy them for that. So that's a that's that's what's up with Gaius Cradle. Seeing Metamorph. Our our one pick this week out of the uh, out of the uh, spoiled cards from New Phyrexia. This guy is so versatile and so great in constructive competitive formats as well as casual formats. You're looking at a card that effectively costs three colorless mana and two life. So it's kind of like a clone that's cheaper costed, not that there's often a guy that costs three or less mana that you need to clone immediately, but the fact that it's not inherently blue, the fact that it's a sculpting steel and a clone combined goes a really long way for for uh, formats like Commander and casual formats. Definitely going to be a cube card. And again, I've been talking about Grand Architect in the block format. This guy is kind of glued right next to him as um, a card that you can cast very cheap and copy Worm Coil Engines, Steel Hellkites, who knows? Maybe in some white silk cloth somewhere down the road. Only at four bucks. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a release card, so it's not you know going to go huge on the value, and it's only a rare. It's not a mythic. That's also going to kind of give it a ceiling. Um, but I definitely think it's worth pre-ordering at the four dollar price tag. Before, I mean, and and I would not be at all surprised if it goes up in value before then. Um, I don't want to like stamp my guarantee on it because. I don't know how much is going to be broken down, but $4 is a fine buy, in my opinion. Going down, I definitely want to save your fifth one on the list to be fifth. First one, Candelabra Thanos. Well, uh, kind of another one of the boons of having the spoiler ahead of time is you have access to the fact that we have this seemingly free spell that anyone can play that counters a spell that costs one. Candelabra of Thanos happens to be a spell that costs one, although it's not solely because of Candelabra of Thanos costing one that its value is going down. The high tide deck seems to be dead in the water. There's a Luis style pun for you. Uh, not only can you counter Candelabra of Thanos with the new mental misstep, but you can also counter a high tide, which is really what the deck needs to go off. Um, Luis has played the deck pretty extensively at this point, and he talks about how all you really need is Four lands, a high tide, and a uh, time spiral to really make it, you know, make it happen. That's not even including the Candelabra. So any kind of disruption on that combo, especially a disruption card that anyone can play, means it's pretty lights out for that deck and moreover the card. Just with how much that thing ran up, 
kind of floored me. I, I, I guess it had a ceiling, and I guess it must have hit it. The next one, Bone Horde. Uh, again, soon to be outclassed by the uh, Batter Skull coming in the next set. Sure, the Boros deck had a lot of reach with this card, being able to tutor for it. Sure, it's a really sweet equipment that's kind of a Lurgoyf in many ways. But now you've got the rebuy capacity on Batter Skull. Uh, it seems pretty hard for um, Bone Horde to be making an appearance in decks would have op- access to either of them in the immediate future. And again, we're only talking about a competitive one of right now. Uh, I think it's it's just gonna go it's gonna go back to the under a dollar bin. Wasteland. Now this is an interesting one. I think uh, more of these are are showing up. I think that's one of the reasons the value has gone down. Playability is still high. Um, it's just, I mean, there's there's more of them in the marketplace. I think there was kind of an artificial inflation on Wasteland because they seemed very scarce. But uh, there's more of them out there, so I think it's it's like settling in price and coming back down. Is this next one because it just still hasn't found a home? Tezzeret, Agent of Bolas? Very much so. Now, this is a card I've had on this on the downside of this list for, it seems like, a while. And it's slowly coming true, as I've been saying. Um, not showing up in the Nationals Qualifiers top eight lists. Not, you know, in decks, really. Sure, there was, like, a Legacy Affinity deck that had a finish with this card. Yes, it's playable. Yes, it's powerful. But right now, it's not you know, kind of holding that $40 price tag that so many people hoped it would. The last one, which, when you put it on the list, I started laughing. <laughs> Why don't you read the last one? So the last thing going down this week is pretty obviously Wizards of the Coast Profits from the uh, new Phyrexia pre-release. Um, obviously, with the Godbook leak this week and so many people getting access to the full spoiler, you just you lose a lot. You lose interest in the set. You lose traffic to the Mothership page for the preview season because everything's out there to the public. Um, you know, not to linger too much on this kind of disastrous situation, but, um, you know, ultimately people are going to be less excited leading up to pre-release weekend because there's so such ease access to the full spoiler. I mean, it's kind of fun for people like myself who get more time to talk about how great these cards are going to be, to assess their value, to pre-sell cards, to decide what's going to go in and out of the queue. But, again, it's a minority compared to the so many people that would be so excited about this list and this set um, leading up to the pre-release. So, ultimately, kind of uh, unfortunate circumstance for the game, I think, and definitely for Wizards of the Coast, because all you're going to get is fewer fewer people heading to these pre-releases. I, I don't see the opposite case being at all true, and so many people have the whole thing to kind of mull over for so long. Historically, in the past, were sets where they've been fully spoiled ahead of time, you know, they, the numbers are down, and uh, it's kind of taken all this wind out of the sail for Wizards of the Coast, and uh, it's been difficult for sites like Channel Fireball to capitalize because we want to be sensitive to the fact that this information was leaked very much illegally, so we aren't um, distributing it you know, currently, um, which is, you know, unfortunate because somebody, it's like we all, we all know it's there, but we have to pretend like it isn't. Um, and it's been rough, but Hopefully the, the strength of the set, the popularity of the set will shine through in the end and it won't be as big of a deal. Fine code. Well, we can't, you know, mention it and not, I mean, to me, kind of laugh at the, uh, oh, I know there's no delicate way to put it, but uh, when you refer to your document for the full set as the God Book, it's going to be something that sticks. So this week's promo code for all you ladies and gents out there is God Book. And all you have to do is enter that at the time of checkout and any order that is, new Phyrexia singles 
will be free shipping on us. Uh, yeah, that's what it says right there. Orders cannot include sealed products, so all those new Phyrexia combos, intro decks, fat packs, complete sets, and so on do not count towards this. But new Phyrexia singles orders, shipping is on us. Head over to the site. Hopefully best prices on the web. Well, I can't guarantee it. I can almost assuredly assume that's the way things are right now. Pick up all your Karns liberated, all your foil mental missteps, everything you need for the new set since we know it's out there and it's going to be impacting standard, block, extended legacy, and who knows, maybe even vintage sometime soon. Is there anything else you want to add this week to the show? It's been a full week. Uh, I've been a busy man trying to uh, break down this spoiler. Check out Magic TV. That should be up. As we're speaking, we have a very extended interview with Patrick Chapin via the Max Headroom cam. Uh, very entertaining. More along those lines to come. We've actually got bonus episodes this week, including a top eight and a bonus top eight this week. Uh, a lot of stuff from Luis and myself. Um, you know, national qualifiers are still out there for people. Good luck. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Absolutely. Again, thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please send them to Robert at ChannelFireball.com. Tristan, yours is? TSG at ChannelFireball.com. All right. Again, thank you again for listening, everybody, and good night. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.